You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of uh, a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Transforming the Soul. This is Volume 2. It was originally entitled Metamorphosis of the Soul. It is Collected Works, Volume 59. Translated by Charles Davy and Christian von Arnhem and revised for this edition by Pauline Verla. This is Lecture 8, entitled Conscience, given on the 5th of May, 1910. Allow me to begin today's lecture with a personal recollection. When I was quite a young man, I experienced a small incident of the kind which seems unimportant, yet which, later in life, can again and again yield pleasant memories. I was attending university lectures on the history of literature. The lecturer began the course by considering the character of cultural life in the time of Lessing as an introduction to a series of discussions on literary developments during the second half of the 18th and part of the 19th century. His opening words were deeply impressive. In order to characterize the chief innovation which appeared in cultural life at the time of Lessing, he said, artistic consciousness acquired an aesthetic conscience. His lecture showed that what he meant by this statement, we need not now ask whether it was justified, was roughly as follows. All the artistic deliberations connected with the endeavors of Lessing and some of his contemporaries, and all they aimed for in their artistic achievements, showed a profoundly earnest wish to make art into something much more than a mere appendage of our existence or to add just one more pleasure to our lives. In fact, they intended to make art into something that would be added to human evolution as an essential factor for our true humanity. To raise art to the level of a serious human concern, worthy of being heard in the choir of voices speaking of the great and creative dimension of humankind, Such was the goal which the great minds at the beginning of that era set themselves. And this is what the lecturer, speaking on the history of literature, wanted to say when he stressed that the life of art and poetry had acquired an aesthetic conscience. Why was this statement important to someone whose ears were open for hearing the riddles of existence? in the way they were reflected in one or another human mind. Because the conception people had of art was to be ennobled by being described in such a way that left no doubt as to its importance for the whole character and destiny of human life. The profound importance of artistic creativity was intended to be placed beyond discussion. And it is indeed true that the experiences denoted to the word conscience, in quotes, are such that all the concerns to which they apply are ennobled. In other words, when the word conscience is spoken of, 
the human soul recognizes that it is referring to a most valuable element of its makeup, and that to be without it would indicate a serious deficiency. And how often have we heard the words used to describe the great importance of what is meant by conscience, irrespective of whether they are taken literally or metaphorically. Quote, what speaks as conscience in the human soul is the voice of God. Close quote. And one could scarcely find anyone, however unprepared they are, to reflect on higher spiritual concerns, who has not formed some idea of what conscience is. Everyone has the vague feeling that whatever conscience may be, it is experienced as a voice in the human breast, determining with an irrefutable force what is good and what is bad, what people must do in order to be at peace with themselves, and what they must refrain from doing so that they do not come to the point of finding themselves contemptible. So we can say, conscience appears to every single human soul as something holy within the human breast, something about which it is actually relatively easy to form some kind of opinion. Things are different, however, if we cast a glance at our history and at human spiritual life. Those trying to look more deeply into spiritual matters of this kind would surely consult those in whom a knowledge of such things may be presupposed, the philosophers, but here, as in so many other cases of wide human concern, they will find that the explanation the various philosophers give regarding conscience are considerably different on the surface, though they all have a more or less obscure kernel common to all of them. But this is not the worst of it. If anyone were to take the trouble to inquire what the various philosophers of both ancient and modern times meant by conscience, they would meet with all sorts of very fine phrases, and also by many that were very difficult to understand. But they would not find anything about which they would feel entirely and without any doubt that it agreed with their own idea of conscience. It would lead us too far today if I were to give you an anthology of the various explanations the philosophical leaders of humankind have given on the subject of conscience over the centuries. But it is worth noting that from about the first third of the Middle Ages onward, whenever throughout the whole of medieval philosophy conscience was spoken of, it was always described as a force in the human soul that was able to make direct assertions about what a human being should or should not do. However, the medieval philosophers also said that Underneath this fount of power there is something else, something of a finer quality than conscience itself. An individuality who has often been mentioned here, Meister Eckhart, tells of a tiny spark at the root of conscience, a kind of eternal principle in the human soul, and that if we listen to it, it indicates with an irresistible force the laws of good and evil. In modern times, we again find the most varied accounts of conscience, including some which make an odd impression, because they quite obviously fail to recognize the whole significance of conscience when seen as the inner voice of God. There are philosophers who say that conscience is actually something that human beings acquire for themselves 
by continually extending their experiences in life and becoming more and more aware of what is useful to them or harmful, what adds to their accomplishments or not. The outcome of these experiences give rise to the conclusion that tells them, quote, do this, don't do that, close quote. There are other philosophers who speak of conscience in terms of the highest praise. One of them is the great German philosopher Johann Gottlieb Fichte, who pointed above all to the human ego, not the transient personal ego, but the eternal core in man, as the fundamental principle of all human thought and being. At the same time he held that the greatest experience human beings can have in their ego was that of conscience. And he said virtually that human beings can experience nothing greater than the inner judgment, quote, you must do this, for it would go against your conscience not to do it, close quote. No judgment could be greater or more noble than this. And as Fichte was the philosopher who laid the most stress on the strength and significance of the human ego, it was characteristic of him that he ranked conscience as the ego's most important impulse. But the further we come into modern times, and the more materialistic thinking becomes, the more we find that conscience is deprived of its noble character, not where the heart is concerned, but with regard to the thinking of the more or less materialistically inclined philosophers. One example will illustrate this trend. In the second half of the 19th century there lived a philosopher who, where nobility of soul is concerned, harmonious feelings and generous breadth of mind, must rank with the finest of personalities. But he is not heard of much today. I am referring to Bartholomew Carnieri. If you look through his writings, you will find, despite his distinguished turn of mind and his broad-minded attitude, that because he was thoroughly prone to materialistic thinking, what he says about conscience is, quote, What are we to make of it? Conscience is nothing more than a collection of habits and of judgments instilled into us during early youth and reinforced by education and life. These instilled habits, of which we are no longer fully conscious, are the source of the inner voice, telling us, quote, You shall do this, you shall not do that, subquote, close quote. That is, the origin of conscience was now being attributed to external influences and habits. In fact, one can hardly envisage a more restricted range. But some even more materialistically minded philosophers went further still. Paul Ray was, for example, who in his middle period had a strong influence on Nietzsche. What he wrote about the origin of conscience is interesting as a symptom of the outlook of our times. His ideas, allowing for some inevitable distortions of details in any brief sketch of them, are roughly as follows. Human beings, Paul Ray says, have developed with regard to all their faculties, therefore also with respect to conscience. Originally we had no trace of what we call conscience. It is gross prejudice to hold that conscience is eternal. A voice telling us what to do and what not to do did not exist originally, according to Ray. But in human nature there was something else that did develop, something we can call an instinct for revenge. This was what came first. 
If someone suffered at the hand of another, the instinct for revenge drove him to pay back the injury in kind. By degrees, as social life became more complicated, the carrying out of vengeance was handed over to the ruling authorities. So people came to believe that any deed that injured another person had by necessity to be followed by something that had previously been called vengeance. So the verdict was arrived at that certain deeds that had serious consequences had to be requited by other deeds. In course of time, this conviction gave rise to an association of certain feelings with the performing of particular actions or even with the temptation to commit them. People had now forgotten that there had once been an instinct for revenge. This had now become an ingrained feeling that a harmful action must be requited. So now, when people believe they are hearing an, in quotes, inner voice, this is, in fact, nothing but the voice of vengeance inside them. Here we have an extreme example of this kind of interpretation, extreme in the sense that conscience is portrayed as a complete illusion. On the other hand, we must admit that it is going much too far to assert, as some people do, that conscience has existed as long as human beings have lived on the earth. In other words, that conscience is, as it were, eternal. Since mistakes are made, both of those who think more spiritually about it, as well as by those who regard conscience as sheer illusion, it is very difficult to reach any agreement in this field, despite the fact that although it is, of course, a sacred subject, it is part of our everyday life. By just looking at the philosophers, we are able to see that in earlier times even the best of them thought of conscience differently from the way in which we are bound to think of it today. For when we say that conscience is a voice speaking as though out of a holy impulse in the breast of even the simplest of people, saying, quote, you ought to do this, you ought to do that, close quote, this is very different from the teaching we find in Socrates and in his successor Plato. They both insist that it can be learned. Socrates indeed, indeed says that if people form clear ideas as to what they should and should not do, then gradually, through the knowledge of what virtue is, they will learn to act virtuously. Now, one could easily object, from a modern standpoint, that things would go badly if we had to wait until we had learned what is right and what is wrong before we would act virtuously. Conscience is something that speaks with a much more elemental force in the human soul and has, for long ages, been heard by individuals to say, quote, you should do this and not that, close quote, well before we learned to form more noble ideas about good and evil, that is, before we began to formulate moral concepts. Furthermore, conscience is also something that allows a certain tranquility to take up its abode in the soul. If people can say about themselves, quote, you can be satisfied with what you have done, close quote. It would be bad, some people might say, if we had to learn a lot about the nature and character of virtue before we were capable of approving of our behavior. Therefore, we can say, that the philosopher to whom we look up as a martyr of philosophy, whose death crowned and ennobled his philosophical work, 
namely Socrates, sets before us a concept of virtue that is difficult to relate to our view of conscience today. And even with the later Greek thinkers, we always find the assertion that one can perfect oneself through a study of virtue, a doctrine that would be fundamentally the opposite of the original elemental power of conscience. How is it, then, that so preeminent and powerful a personality as Socrates is not aware of the idea of conscience that we have today, although we feel, when we approach him as Plato describes him, that the purest sense of morality and the highest degree of virtue speaks through his words? The sole reason is that even the ideas, mental images, and inner experiences which we feel today as though they were innate, were in fact acquired laboriously by the human soul in course of time. When we trace the spiritual, cultural life of humankind back into the past, we will, after all, find the concept of conscience and the way people felt about it were not the same in olden times, nor among the people of Greece as they are today. Conscience, in fact, arose. But we cannot discover how this occurred by the simple methods of external experiences and scholarship as Paul Ray, for example, tried to do. We have to take the way of illuminating more deeply the depths of the human soul. Now our task in the lectures this winter has been precisely to illuminate more deeply the constitution of the soul and to do so with the very light that comes from raising the soul to higher levels of knowledge. A description has been given of this whole life of the soul that reveals itself to the inner eye, E-Y-E, of the seer, the eye that does not acquire knowledge of the sense world only, but looks behind the veil of the sense world into the region where the primary sources, the spiritual foundations of the sense world, are to be found. And it has repeatedly been shown, for example in the lecture What is Mysticism, that the consciousness of the seer opens the way into deeper regions of the soul, over and above our soul life as we experience it in everyday life. We believe that even in ordinary life we come to delve into further depths of the soul when we look into ourselves and encounter what we experience in our thinking, feeling and willing. But it was pointed out also that in our waking consciousness what we see is only the outer aspect of spiritual reality. Just as we have to look behind the veil spread over the sense world if we want to discover the underlying causes behind everything we see and hear and our brain apprehends, so must we look behind our thinking, feeling and willing and the basis of our ordinary soul life if we want to get to know the actual spiritual causes of our own life. From these starting points we set out to throw light on the life of the human soul in its various ramifications. We discovered that this soul life must be conceived as made up of three members which must be distinguished from one another, but please note, not separated from one another. The sentient soul presented itself as the lowest of these members. In the case of people who are entirely given up to their instincts, desires and passions, 
and who have not yet managed to cleanse and purify their emotions and master them from out of their ego, we say that the sentient soul still predominates. When people acquire more and more the upper hand over their instincts, desires and passions, a higher soul member then presents itself, the rational or perceptive soul. Now, a sense of truth can assert itself, a sympathy toward other human beings and similar qualities. The rational soul develops from out of the sentient soul. And the highest level of soul which human beings can attain at present, they will develop still higher ones in the future, is that of the consciousness soul. Whilst it is with their sentient soul that human beings respond by way of their instincts and passions to the impressions made on them from outside, they ascend in their perceptive soul to the point where they can respond to impressions of the world without paying attention solely to instincts and passions. When they purify their instincts, desires and passions, the rational soul develops. When they approach the external world with what they have made their own in inner qualities, when they have acquired thoughts within them with which they can comprehend the world and can tell themselves, quote, My mental images and concepts are there for the purpose of making the world intelligible to me. When they, so to speak, break out of themselves again in order to acquire a consciousness of all that exists in the world outside, then they rise to the level of the consciousness soul. What is it that is working its way up in the human soul by way of these three soul members? It is the human ego, the unifying point in man's inner being, which holds them all together, playing on them as though on the strings of a musical instrument, causing them to sound together in the most varied ways, harmonious or discordant. This inner power that operates by reconnecting concepts with the world's objects is what we call the human I, capital which is present in all the three soul members like an inner artist that plays on man's soul being as on three strings of a musical instrument. But this inner play of the ego only developed by gradual stages, and we shall understand how our present-day consciousness and soul life have evolved from primeval times if we glance at what human beings can become in the future, or even today, if from out of the consciousness soul they develop a higher clairvoyant form of consciousness. The ordinary consciousness soul enables us to grasp solely the external world as perceived by the senses. If people want to penetrate behind the veil of the sense world, they must continue with their own development and raise their soul life to a higher level. Then they make the great discovery that something like an awakening of the soul can occur, something comparable to an operation on a person born blind, when a hitherto unknown world of light and color breaks in upon them. This is how it is with people who, through the appropriate methods, raise their soul to a higher level of development. Then the moment comes when those elements in our environment which, although they are swarming around us all the time, are normally ignored, now enter us as a wealth of beings and activities because we have acquired a new organ of perception.
For those who achieve by training a conscious seership of this kind, their full ego is involved in this new seeing, meaning that just as they move among tables and chairs in the sense world, they now also move among the spiritual activities and beings which are at the foundation of our sense world with their ego, which at the earlier stages led them through the sentient soul, rational soul and consciousness soul. But now let us turn back from this clairvoyant consciousness, which is illuminated and set aglow by the ego, to the ordinary life of the soul. A human being's ego lives in all kinds of ways in the three soul members. People who live entirely in the instincts, desires and passions that arise in their sentient soul, without actually doing anything about it themselves, we would describe as abandoning themselves to their sentient soul and as having an ego that is as yet active to only a very small degree. Their ego is only a dim light compared to the power in the surging waves of the sentient soul. In the rational or perceptive soul, the ego has now acquired more freedom and independence. Here human beings come to be more themselves, for the rational soul can develop only insofar as people reflect upon and work calmly through what they experience by way of their sentient soul. In the rational soul, people come to their ego and find themselves. The ego becomes more and more radiant and at last achieves the full clarity of self-awareness in the consciousness soul. The advancing strength of the ego is seen in its progress from the sentient soul through the rational soul to the consciousness soul. If, however, human beings can rise further in the ego beyond the consciousness soul to clairvoyant consciousness, to even more advanced soul members, so to speak, we shall also understand on looking back to the earlier evolution of humankind, that just as the ego rises to higher soul levels, so did it enter the sentient soul from a subordinate member of human nature. We have seen that the soul members, sentient soul, rational or perceptive soul and consciousness soul, have developed within the totality of our human sheaths, namely the physical body, etheric body and astral body or sentient body. Therefore you will find it comprehensible that, as spiritual science indicates, the ego, before it developed its way through the sentient soul to the consciousness soul, was active in the sentient body and earlier still in the etheric and the physical body. In those times the ego still guided human beings from outside. It worked within the darkness of bodily life. Human beings were not yet able to say I with regard to themselves. Capital. To find the central point of their own being within themselves. What are we to think of this ego which worked in human beings in the primeval past, building up their exterior bodily organization? Are we to regard it as less perfect compared with the ego which we ourselves bear within our souls today? We look on our ego today as the real inner focus of our being, 
actually as that which makes up our inner being and is capable through schooling of infinitely progressing into the future. We see it as the embodiment of our human nature and the guarantor of our human worth. Now, when we were not yet aware of this ego, while it was working on us from out of the dark spiritual forces of the world, was it then less perfect in comparison to what it is now? This could only be said by someone who was prepared to think in a quite abstract way. We look on our physical body as having been formed out of the spiritual world in the primordial past as a dwelling place for the soul. Only a materialistic mind could believe that this physical body did not come from spirit. We are at the same time looking at something which as a spiritual creation had to precede our inner life. For during earth existence our inner life has to dwell in a body, and this body had to be prepared beforehand. Seen merely from an external point of view, the physical body must appear a miracle of perfection. What do all our intellectual ability and technical skills amount to compared with the wisdom manifest in the structure of the human heart? Or take the engineering technique that goes into the building of bridges. What is it compared with the construction of the human thigh bone with its wonderful criss-cross structure as seen through the microscope? It would be sheer boundless arrogance if we were to suppose that we have attained in the slightest degree to the wisdom inherent in the formation of the external physical body. And when we look, then look at the soul, even only taking into account our instincts, desires and passions, how do they function? Are we not doing all we can from within to undermine the wisdom-filled organization of our body? Indeed, anyone who looks with an open mind at the marvel of our physical sheath has to admit that our bodily structure is infinitely wiser than anything we have in our inner being although we hope that despite how imperfect it is, it will shape up to become more and more perfect. And we can hardly believe anything else, even without being clairvoyant, if we look impartially at what is before our eyes. Is not this wise activity that has built up the human body as a dwelling place for the ego, bound to have something of the same nature and essence as the ego itself? Must we not think of this formative power as having the character of an ego, but one of an infinitely more perfect kind? We must realize that something related to our ego has been working through time immemorial at building a sheath that can be indwelt by an ego. People who refuse to believe this may believe whatever they like. They may even believe that a human dwelling built for human beings to live in was not designed by a human mind, but was put together merely by the activity of natural forces. If you look at it objectively, one is as good as another. So we look back to a primordial past, when a spiritual power endowed with an infinitely perfect ego nature worked at building up our bodily sheaths, out of which, in the future, our ego would work its way forth to its present state of consciousness.
In primeval times it was hidden in subconscious depths within these sheaths. If we look into this evolution that has been taking place since time immemorial, when the ego was hidden within its sheaths as though in the darkness of a womb, we find that although the ego had no knowledge of itself, it was all the closer to those spiritual beings who were forming our sheaths and were related to the ego, but were of incomparably greater perfection. Clairvoyant insight thus looks back to a time when human beings had not yet acquired ego consciousness, for they were embedded in spiritual life itself, and to when their soul life was also different, for it was much closer to the soul forces from which the ego has emerged. In those times, too, we find in human beings a primeval clairvoyant consciousness that functioned dimly and dreamily, for it was not illumined by the light of an ego, and it was from this mode of consciousness that the ego first came forth. The faculty that human beings will acquire again in the future by means of their ego was present in them in the past without their having an ego. For human beings to see spiritual beings and spiritual truths in the environment entails having clairvoyant consciousness. As they did not have an ego glowing within them, it was not the case that they remained within themselves when they beheld the spiritual, but beheld themselves as part of the spiritual world, and their deeds appeared to them to have a spiritual character. When they had thoughts, they did not feel that they themselves were thinking, but they saw the thoughts clairvoyantly. And to experience a feeling, they did not only have to look within themselves, for the feeling rayed out from them, uniting them with their whole spiritual environment. Such was the soul life of man in primordial times. And human beings had to progress from out of this dreamlike clairvoyant consciousness in order to come to themselves and to find their center, which today is still imperfect, but which will become in the future more and more perfect, and they will ascend with their ego into the spiritual world. Now, if light is thrown on those primordial times by means of clairvoyance, in the way described, what does the seer tell us concerning the human consciousness of those times when people had, for example, committed an evil deed? The deed did not present itself to them as something they could inwardly assess. They beheld it with all its harmfulness and shamefulness as a ghostly vision. And when the feeling of it arose in their soul, the shamefulness of it came before them as a spiritual reality, so that they were as though surrounded by the sight of the evil they had committed. Then in the course of time, this ancient dreamlike clairvoyance faded, and the human ego asserted itself more and more. And in so far as people found the center of their being, the old clairvoyance disappeared and ego consciousness became more and more distinct. And what they had previously had in the way of a vista of their bad deeds and also of their good deeds was transformed to their inner being, and deeds once clairvoyantly beheld became mirrored within them. 
But were human beings being shown in dreamy clairvoyance in the form of these counter-images of their bad deeds? The spiritual forces of their environment were showing them pictures of the damage, the harm they had done to the cosmic order. And in fact, this was no bad response, but a beneficial one. It was as if, excuse me, it was as it were, the God's reaction to the deed showing them the effect of it so that they could eliminate its harmful consequences and rise above it. This was indeed a terrifying experience, yet it was fundamentally therapeutic, coming from the ground of existence from which man himself came. When the time came for human beings to find in themselves their ego center, this external vision moved into their inner being, appearing as the mirror image of the effect of the deed. When the ego first makes its appearance, it is weak and frail in the sentient soul, and human beings have to work their slow way up to gradually perfecting themselves. Now, what would have happened when the external, clairvoyant vision of the effects of their misdeeds had disappeared if it had not been replaced within the still weak ego by an inner counter-image of the beneficial influence. They would have been thrown to and fro by passion in their sentient soul, as though in a boundless surging sea. What was it that entered at this historic moment from outside into people's inner being? It was the cosmic spirit powerfully revealing itself inside them at a time when their ego was still weak, the same spirit as had brought the harmful effects of their deeds before their clairvoyant consciousness as a healing influence, showing them from outside what they had to make good. Having previously spoken to human beings through clairvoyant vision, the spirit of the cosmos entered into their being when it was a matter of telling them what had to be put right concerning the harm done to the world order. The human ego was still weak, and the cosmic spirit keeps perpetual, unsleeping watch over it, and passes judgment where the ego could not yet judge of itself. Behind the weak ego stands something like a reflection of the powerful cosmic spirit, which had formerly shown human beings through clairvoyant vision the consequences of their deeds. And they now experience this reflection as conscience watching over them. So, we see how true it is when conscience is naively described as the voice of God in man. At the same time, we see spiritual science pointing to the moment when what was outside withdrew and conscience arose. What I have now been saying can be drawn purely from the spiritual world. We do not need historical, excuse me, external history to tell us. It has to be seen by the inner eye, E-Y-E, and those who see these things will know them for incontestable truths. But a certain need of the times provokes us to ask whether external history might perhaps show us some confirmation of the facts of the case as seen by inner vision. The findings of clairvoyant consciousness can always be tested by external evidence, and there is no need to fear that the evidence will contradict them. 
that could only possibly happen if testing were inexact. Here is an example that can show how external facts confirm the statements here derived from clairvoyant insight. It is not so very long since the time when the birth of conscience can be seen to occur. When we go back to the 5th and 6th centuries B.C., we encounter in Greece the great dramatic poet Aeschylus. And in his work we find something that is particularly remarkable for the reason that the same subject was treated later on by another Greek poet in a different way. Aeschylus depicts Agamemnon, who on returning home from Troy is murdered by his wife Platonestra. Agamemnon is avenged by his son Orestes, who, on being counseled by the gods, kills the mother who murdered his father. What is, then, the consequence of this deed of Orestes? Aeschylus shows how the effect of matricide calls forth in Orestes a mode of seeing which was no longer normal in those times. The enormity of his crime caused the old clairvoyance to arise in him once more like an heirloom from the past. And Orestes says, Apollo, the god himself, tells me it is a just act to avenge my father upon my mother. Everything I have done speaks in my favor, but my mother's blood is still at work. And in the second part of the Orestian trilogy, we are shown in powerful form the ancient clairvoyance reawakening and showing him the approach of the avenging goddesses, the Arinaeis, or Furies, as they were called later by the Romans. Orestes sees before him in external form, by way of dreamlike clairvoyance, the effect of his act of matricide. Apollo approves of his deed, but there is something that is above that. Aeschylus wished to indicate that a still higher cosmic order exists and this he could do only by making Orestes become clairvoyant at that moment. For Aeschylus had not reached the point where he could dramatize what today we call an inner voice. But particularly when we study Agamemnon, we feel that he was at the stage when something like conscience ought to emerge from the whole content of the human soul, but he never quite reached that point. He presents Orestes as being confronted by what has not yet been transformed into conscience, the images of clairvoyant consciousness. Yet we see that he is on the verge of breaking through to conscience. Every word Clytemnestra says makes us feel that he should now be introducing the idea of conscience, but he does not reach that point. In that century, the great poet could only show how bad deeds had presented themselves to the human soul in earlier times. We will now pass on a generation, pass over Sophocles and come to Euripides, who only a relatively short time later describes the same situation. Scholars have rightly pointed out, though spiritual science alone can show this in its true light, that in Euripides the dream pictures experienced by Orestes similar to the handling of this in Shakespeare, are no more than shadowy images of the inner promptings of conscience. Here we have palpable evidence of the way conscience was taken up and expressed in the art of poetry. We see how Aeschylus, great poet as he was, does not yet speak of conscience 
whereas Euripides, his successor, does. With this development in mind, we can see why human thinking could work its way only very slowly toward a conception of conscience. The force at work in conscience now was only active in olden times, in the form of the pictures that represented the effects of people's deeds appearing to their clairvoyant vision. It is just that this force passed from outside inside. But before it could be felt to be an inner force, the whole process of human development leading gradually to the conception of conscience had to take its course. During this time we have the example of the sublimely great thinker Socrates. Why was Socrates not in a position to speak of the particular matter of the acquisition of virtues? Why could he not speak in the most impressive way regarding morality? And why could the conception of conscience not be part of the philosophy of his time? When we see so clearly that the human soul was on the very point of discovering conscience as the God that speaks in our own inner being, we will readily understand that the whole point why Socrates did not yet speak of conscience was because this force was still in the process of entering into the human soul from outside. Thus we see conscience as a faculty that takes time to develop and has to be acquired by man's own efforts. In what way does it have to manifest? Where should we look for its most intense activity? At the very point where man is still at the fragile stage of just beginning the process of ego development. This is something that can actually be pointed to in human development. In Greece itself, human beings were already a little further advanced so that ego development had already reached the stage of the rational soul. If, however, we look further back than Greek times, outer history knows nothing of this, but Plato and Aristotle were clairvoyantly aware of it, and we come to the time of Egypt and Chaldea, we find that even the most eminent culture of those times was not acquired by means of an inwardly independent ego. The difference between what was produced by the sanctuaries of Egypt and Chaldea and the products of present-day science is that today science is grasped in the consciousness soul, whereas in pre-Hellenic times they owed everything to the sentient soul. In Greece itself, the ego progressed from the sentient soul to the rational and perceptive soul. Today we are living in the epoch of the consciousness soul, in which actual ego consciousness comes into its own for the first time. Those who really and truly study the evolution of humankind, and in particular the transition from Eastern to Western culture, can see quite definitely how human progress has been marked by ever-increasing feelings of freedom and greater and greater independence. Whereas formerly human beings had felt themselves to be entirely dependent on inspirations sent them by the gods, an inwardizing of culture first occurred in the West. This is shown, for instance, in the way Aeschylus strives to bring about a consciousness of the ego in the human soul. We see him standing on the borderline between East and West, 
with one eye looking toward the Orient and the other toward the Occident, drawing forth from the human soul the forces that will later on come together specifically to form the conception of conscience. We see Aeschylus striving to do this, though he is not yet able to give dramatic embodiment to the new form of conscience. Perpetual comparisons can lead to confusion. We must not only compare but also distinguish. The essential thing is that in the West everything was designed to raise the ego from the sentient soul up to the consciousness soul. In the East, the ego remains dim and unfree. In the West, by contrast, there is a development among human beings whereby the ego works its way further and further up into the consciousness soul. Even if, to begin with, evolution goes in the direction of the ancient clairvoyant consciousness being extinguished, everything is, after all, designed to awaken the ego and to bring about the birth of the conscience as the inner voice of God, the keeper of the ego. And Aeschylus was the cornerstone between the Eastern and the Western world. In the Eastern world, human beings had retained a living awareness of their descent from the divine cosmic spirit. And this made it possible for them to acquire an understanding of the event which took place a few hundred years after endeavors had been made by many people, such as Aeschylus, to find something that spoke as the voice of God within them. For this event brought to humankind the impulse which by all spiritual standpoints must be regarded as the greatest impulse ever to enter the evolution of the earth and of man, the impulse we call the Christ impulse. It was the Christ impulse that first made it possible for humankind to realize that God, the Creator, who among all the other things He created, also created our outer sheaths, can be grasped hold of and understood in our inner being. Only by understanding the divine humanity of Christ Jesus were human beings capable of understanding that God could be something that can speak to us in our inner being. In order that human beings could actually find God's nature within themselves, it was necessary for the Christ to enter into humanity's evolution in the form of an extended historical event. If the Christ with his divine being had not been present in the body of Jesus of Nazareth, if he had not shown once and for all that, that God can be grasped in our inner being because he had once been present in a human body, if he had not appeared as the conqueror of death, through the mystery of Golgotha, human beings would never have been able to comprehend the indwelling of divinity within themselves. Anyone trying to claim that this indwelling could have been grasped without the Christ having been part of his external history might as well claim that we would have had eyes even if there were no sun. As against the partial view of some philosophers, that since without eyes we could not see the light, therefore light must derive from eyes, we must always remember Goethe's statement, quote, the eyes are created by light for the light, close quote. If there were no sun illuminating space, 
no eyes would ever have developed in the human organism. The eyes are creations of the light. And without the sun being there, no eyes could perceive it. No eye is capable of perceiving the sun without having first received from the sun the power to do so. Nor could there have been the power to grasp and recognize the nature of the Christ if the Christ impulse had not entered into external history. What the sun out there in the universe is for human sight, the historical Christ Jesus is for what we think of as the permeation of our own being by divine nature. The elements necessary for understanding this were present in the stream of thought that came over from the East. They needed only to be raised to a higher level. It was in the West that souls were mature enough to grasp and accept what this impulse had brought, for it was in the West that people had experienced strongest the drawing inward in the form of conscience of what had previously been experienced outside themselves, and which, now as conscience, kept guard over their, as yet, frail ego, and which told them the divine being who appeared in the East to those able to perceive the world clairvoyantly, this divinity now lives in us. However, what was thus being prepared could not have become a conscious experience if the inner divinity had not spoken in advance in the dawning of conscience. So we see that just as an external understanding of the divinity of Christ Jesus was born in the East, the emergence of conscience came to meet it from the West. For example, we find that just when the Christian era is beginning, conscience is more and more spoken of in the Roman world. And the further westward we come, the more it is potentially there in people's consciousness. Thus east and west played into each other's hands. We see the sun quality of Christ's nature rising in the east, while in the west making way for an understanding of him, the I-E-Y-E of Christ in human conscience is being prepared. Hence the victorious advance of Christianity is toward the West, not the East. On the other hand, a form of religion spreads in the East that is the final consequence, though now at the highest level, of the Eastern outlook, Buddhism. And whilst Buddhism is taking hold of the Eastern world, Christianity takes hold of the Western world, because Christianity had just created there the organ for receiving it. And we see Christianity forging a link with what has become the most profound factor of Western culture, the concept of conscience. We shall only come to understand these developments by looking at the inner nature of events and not by studying external history. What I am saying today will meet with disbelief in many people. But a demand of the times is that we should recognize the spirit in external phenomena. This, however, is possible only if we are at least able initially to discern the Spirit where it speaks to us in the form of a clear message. At the general level of consciousness, people say, quote, When conscience speaks, it is God speaking in the soul. Close quote. 
At the highest level of consciousness, we become aware that when conscience speaks, it is actually the spirit of our world. And spiritual science brings out the connection between conscience and the greatest event in the evolution of humankind, the Christ event. Therefore, it is no wonder that for modern consciousness, anything brought into connection with conscience is thereby ennobled and raised to a higher sphere. When we hear it said that something has been done for reasons of conscience, we feel that it has been regarded as belonging to the most important aspect of our humanity. So we easily see how right the human heart is to speak of conscience as the, quote, God in man, close quote. And when Goethe says that the greatest experience human beings can have is when the nature of God is revealed to us, we must realize that this revelation comes to us in the Spirit only when nature appears to us right to its spiritual foundations. That it can appear to us in this way has been provided for in humankind's evolution, on the one hand by the Christ light, shining from outside, and on the other hand by the divine light in ourselves, conscience. Hence a philosopher such as Fichte, a student of character, is justified in saying that conscience is the greatest voice in our inner being. On this occasion also we are aware that our dignity as human beings is inseparable from conscience. What makes us human is our ego-consciousness, and anything we think of in connection with conscience can be thought of in connection with the ego. Therefore, conscience is something we regard as a most sacred individual possession, one which cannot be interfered with by anything coming from outside us, and by means of which we can set our own direction and goal. When conscience speaks, no other voice may intrude. So on the one hand, conscience is a guarantee of our connection with the divine primordial powers of the world, and on the other hand, a guarantee of our having within the innermost, most individual part of ourselves, something that emanates to us as a droplet from the Godhead. And human beings can be sure that when conscience speaks within them, it is a God speaking. The end of Lecture 8